Welcome to Podcast West Seattle. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Andrew. On this episode of Podcast West Seattle, we take a look at some events going on around the neighborhood. It's already been used and we'll just continue to restock it. We also take a deeper dive into West Seattle's most prominent geographic feature. When we look out over that blue surface, it's what's underneath. There's just this incredible world that we are traveling over. All of this and more is next on Podcast West Seattle. As I record this, it is Wednesday, June 16th. A check of West Seattle's upcoming weather shows normal temps this week with highs in the 70s and only a slight chance of rain, then warming into the mid-80s by Monday. Now let's take a quick look at some of the news from around the Duwamish Peninsula this past week. Last Friday, the West Seattle Bridge Community Task Force met. The West Seattle blog had their usual excellent and thorough report on the meeting, as well as a link to a video of the meeting itself. A couple of takeaways include that a contractor, Kramer North America, has been chosen to proceed with the repairs to the bridge. And even though SDOT's Greg Izzo says everything is on schedule and on track, he also says it's way too early to start setting dates when the bridge might reopen. With repairs currently slated to finish up in mid-2022, it seems like we're still well over a year from using that bridge. On Sunday, West Seattle residents saw four giant shipping cranes making their way toward Terminal 5 on West Seattle's Harbor Island. Westside Seattle reports the cranes stand 316 feet tall with 240-foot booms, making them some of the largest cranes on the entire West Coast. The cranes' arrival is part of the ongoing preparations for Terminal 5's reopening next year. And earlier this week, a new free little pantry went up in front of the 100-year-old Fauntleroy Schoolhouse. I spoke with Denise Wallace, the manager of the Fauntleroy Schoolhouse. The Girl Scout Troop 45180 reached out to me and wanted to do a give back project. And they wanted to put out a pantry uh, that's supplied with food that's given back to the community. They reached out, um, I want to say September. They wanted to see if I would be interested in the project and if they thought it would be a good fit for the community. And I thought it was a perfect fit. They actually put it up on June 13th. We've had food right away be taken from it. So it's already uh, been used and we'll just continue to restock it. Thanks, Denise. Now let's take a quick peek ahead at our coming week in West Seattle. Two holidays are coming up this weekend. Juneteenth is on Saturday and Father's Day is on Sunday. Speaking of Father's Day, this Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. there will be a Father's Day Native Art Market at the Duwamish Longhouse and Cultural Center. There will be fry bread, corn on the cob, a salmon baked meal will be available for $25 from noon to 3. Affordable art prints, jewelry, and much, much more will be available. I know I'm going to try to make it down there. The Duwamish Longhouse and Cultural Center is located at 4705 West Marginal Way. There will be plenty of parking in the Seattle Public Utilities lot. Check it out. And finally, some exciting news. Podcast West Seattle is thrilled to announce the triumphant return of Seattle's best open mic. Wednesday, July 14th, the Skylark Cafe and Club will open their microphone and their excellent PA system to anyone who signs up to perform. That is just one month from today. In an email, Matt from the Skylark tells me that they're booked up with shows through most of July, 
including the band Them, on Sunday, July 11th. The Skylark's calendar will be updated soon, or you can learn more by going to the Skylark and buying some of their excellent food. Thanks to Matt for sending the update. As more and more activities open up, we here in West Seattle seem to be feeling the isolation of the bridge closure a bit more these days. That got me thinking about the massive body of salt water that surrounds us on two and a half sides. I rode the Fauntleroy Ferry over to Vashon one morning just to get myself out on the water. It's the first time I've been on the ferry in over a year. It's also the least crowded I can ever remember seeing it. Out on the deck, it's a beautiful day. Light blue sky, dark blue water. I can see jellyfish in the water directly below. It strikes me how little I think of Puget Sound, the barrier that has made us an accidental island. So I reached out to someone who's thought a lot about Puget Sound lately. When you're on the ferry, again, we sort of, I think we sort of take for granted this idea that... Author and friend of the program, David B. Williams. And, and yet underneath, you know, dozens and dozens of species, great depth, a geologic story, a biological story that's directly underneath us. His new book is Home Waters, A Human and Natural History of Puget Sound. There's the cultural aspect of being on the ferry, of being on this maritime highway. Williams talks about how the sound has always dictated travel in the region. For thousands of years, for the first 10, 12,000 plus years history of Puget Sound, that the waterway was the highway. And now we've really changed that dynamic. But so when you're on there, you're, you're part of a story that's been going, that's been played out for thousands of years in Puget Sound. You know, this has always been part of the sort of story of West Seattle, this isolated peninsula and related to the water. And there have been attempts for as long as Seattle has existed, certainly since the 1880s, to figure out how do you connect and bring the West Seattle Peninsula, if you will, into Seattle itself. I mean, I think it's one of the interesting aspects. You know, it's not till what, 1907 that West Seattle actually becomes technically part of Seattle when it gets annexed. But before then, there were, people were always figuring out ways to, to, to link those, that West Seattle, Duwamish Head with downtown. You know, in our early ferry system, there was a, you know, you can find these early maps of bridges going across the tide flats, railroad trestles going across the tide flats. At one point, a plan was floated that would have drastically changed West Seattle as we know it. Yeah, they in the 50s had this proposal to build a bridge from Vashon to uh, West Seattle, Fauntleroy over, and it would have been, yeah, this huge floating bridge, 14,000 feet long. And, you know, in one sense, it's easy to think about the bridge as the impact there. You know, it's like, oh, but equally compelling is, wow, what would that mean for people driving over to this through West Seattle? All of a sudden to have this freeway, you know, like having the Hood Canal being connected. And we all know what traffic's like on that. That can be like on that road. It'd just be that much more intense if it were in, in West Seattle. So, yeah. And fortunately, obviously, as we all know, it wasn't built. <laughs> When you look out over that blue surface, that beautiful, beautiful water, it's what's underneath. There's just this incredible world that we are traveling over. 
Well, somebody who is just looking at the water and seeing a beautiful place, but there's another beautiful place under the water that they can't see. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that world underneath the surface. So I contacted a few members of the Notorious Alki Swimmers. My name is Chelsea. My name's Sam Day. So 10 weeks ago, I moved to West Seattle over to Alki, and then I started right up with the Notorious Alki Swimmers. I've been swimming in Puget Sound for, oh, I think about 12 years. And I'm the guy who, a few years ago, swam a mile with a brick in each hand. One aspect of the sound you instantly appreciate when swimming in it is the cold. When I moved to Seattle, I had I had just terrors of being in the open water. I had done a competition when I was 14 to swim around the island of Key West with my swim team, which was awesome. And but that was, you know, that was warm water. <laughs> Coming out here, the first time I went into the waters out here, I saw people swimming and I was really excited to go out and my friends told me it's really cold. And I thought, what do you mean it's cold? And I stepped my feet in and I was frozen. And I was thought I thought I was frozen for the rest of my life. If you jump in the water and you've never jumped in cold water before, you're going to gasp and you're going to think you're going to die and you're going to get out. When I put my face in to do my first, like, cap and goggle full-on swim, it took my breath away. It was so – it was about 46 <laughs> degrees that day. And it just – shocked my whole system and I thought what have I gotten myself into <laughs> these people are insane I stand up to my thighs until my skin feels comfortable and then I dive in and I swim a couple miles and and uh, you know I'm used to it um, so right now with the water about 52 degrees it just feels perfect to me <laughs> you know it's not freezing you know, the wonderful thing about winter swimming is it's clearer in the winter. You don't have as much plankton and phytoplankton growing, and and, uh, and you can see all the beautiful critters on the bottom. To be able to not only get over the cold water, but also to deal with the, the creatures and the plants and the saltiness and the waves and the fact that there are whales and boats. Well, it's quite memorable to have a sea lion swim underneath you. They're they're rather large. Um, I suppose they they get playful with scuba divers, but that's never happened to me. They, um, and I'm still I still get spooked by them, even though I tell myself I'm not going to get spooked by a sea lion. Um, harbor seals, on the other hand, they're cute and cuddly and fuzzy and um, never been scary. I think. That's one thing that's so unique about the sound. It's so swimmable, you know, compared to maybe the ocean, which has bigger waves and is more expansive. The sound is, like, secluded, and it's home to all these creatures. And so it's like swimming in a in a world of magic, <laughs> but also <laughs> it's, like, terrifying because you're in their space. And it's not that they're in your space and that they're they're bothering you. Like you're you're intruding on their world, and they're right. letting you keep going. <laughs> uh, we think of the sound as I think Sam, you know, Sam and Orca obviously are the two big icons. Here's David B. Williams again. But in talking to biologists, they about this 
the area, they really make the central point that herring is sort of the node of which all the big food web revolves around because they're eating all these little critters and then they're getting eaten by bigger critters throughout their lives. And, and you know, when you're in West Seattle, one of the things that's, that's amazing, and I don't think it happened this year, but it's happened certainly in the last couple of years, are these big herring spawn events off of Alki and, and Miqua Mooks. And they're just you know, thousands and thousands of fish giving birth underwater. That attracts this huge array of birds. It attracts mammals. Everybody's coming and eating there. So there's this, there's this incredible uh, richness that the herring represent. And yes, they've suffered, but they also are really central to the to the human and to the and to the natural story of the sound. My one advantage is that I'm a very strong swimmer. So once I get into Puget Sound. I don't have to worry about the swimming aspect of it. And the group is there to encourage me and help me get over my fears of the jellyfish that I didn't realize were there. (laughs) (laughs) And swimming through clouds of seaweed and, you know, through the tall forests of kelp trees. The kelp that are under there, the kelp forest, these incredible ecosystems that are equivalent to the terrestrial rainforest in terms of providing habitat, nursery, safe harbor, resources, nutrients for all of the other rest of life, the rest of life that circles around them. There's marine biologists that swim with us, so they help us identify what we're seeing, and they help me get over that fear and allow me to approach it with curiosity and and respect. But occasionally you see, you know, a dogfish or, you know, there are anemones and there are... And so every mm-hmm. time I get into the water, whether it's for a swim or on my paddleboard, I make a promise to the water that I will do no harm and leave no trace. And then to respect everyone who's in there, because I understand that they're letting me visit their world. And that, you know, being able to swim around seals and sea lions and past jellyfish and come out unscathed is magnificent. And knowing that I've seen whales out there and porpoises, it's so magical. To work on this book, Homewaters, and look at the deep story of Puget Sound really just revealed to me the that we, yeah, we are blessed to live in this place. And we are at a cusp, I think, where the sound is in better shape than it's been for many decades. And we have the opportunity to keep moving it in that direction. Thank you to David B. Williams. You can find his book, Home Waters, A Human and Natural History of Puget Sound at most Seattle area bookstores. Or you can order it directly from him by going to geologywriter.com. Also, thanks to Chelsea Lee and Sam Day. You can learn much more about the Notorious Alki Swimmers by checking out Episode 2 of Podcast West Seattle. You can also show up at the Alki Bathhouse on a Saturday morning to learn more. Okay, great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Do come swim with us again. Thanks, Sam. That's all for this episode of Podcast West Seattle. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about the podcast. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. And of course, subscribe. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, 
Stay yar, West Seattle.